1950, the evangelist Billy Graham was preparing for one of his crusades in Boston, Massachusetts. And there was a press conference. And at the press conference, a journalist questioned him on how much money he was expecting to make from his crusade. And he explained to them that he received a wage from a Christian college. That was his income. He would receive no money from the crusade itself. And he was pressed further by these journalists about his earnings and what profit he would expect to make from, from such an event. And he pulled out a telegram from his pocket and he said to the journalists, if I were interested in making money, I would take advantage of something like this. And this telegram was an offer from a Hollywood movie maker. They would give him $250,000 to star in two Hollywood movies. Now later on in the 1960s, Billy Graham was urged to run uh, for the American presidency. An oil billionaire offered him $6 million to bankroll his presidential run. He was also offered a further $6 million for his own personal bank account if his name could be nominated at the Republican Convention. Now, he turned down the offer because he considered the work he already did, his evangelistic work, to be of much greater importance than running for the presidency of the United States of America. And the massive crusades that he did, they weren't for his own self-promotion or glorification. He wasn't doing it for the status or for what money he could earn. This is what he once said, the great question of our time is, will we be motivated by materialistic philosophy or by spiritual power? This is really at the heart of the problems in the Corinthian church. There were false teachers that had infiltrated their ranks. They were discrediting Paul. They were calling into question his apostleship. They didn't believe that he was a true apostle of God. From a materialistic philosophy, Paul's life made no sense. And this was something he'd already encountered with them and something he'd already addressed with them as well. In 1 Corinthians, Paul explains that when he came among them, he didn't preach to them with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Paul wants them to see that having it all together on the outside and presenting the message using attractive language, by making yourself sound clever, it ultimately doesn't cut it. It's not authentic. He's begun 2 Corinthians by demonstrating his confidence in his apostolic position. It's by the will of God that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's proclaimed and he's demonstrated the authentic message of Jesus Christ. He's lived out the true message. In this passage, he begins to set the record straight. This is more than personal integrity. This is primarily about the integrity of the message Paul brought to Corinth. 
That's of first importance. So from verse 12 through to the end of the chapter, Paul, he deals with motives and misunderstanding. Verse 12 to 14 explain Paul's motives. And then verse 15, verses 15 to the end, they deal with misunderstanding. So let's have a look at motives first. In verses 12 to 14, Paul talks about purity. And he defends not just himself, but his colleagues in the ministry, Timothy and Sylvanus. A bit like what those journalists were trying to do when they were attempting to um, get Billy Graham to talk about money. The Corinthians were trying to discredit Paul and his friends. They were trying to portray that they didn't really practice what they preached. There were double standards going on. As they looked at Paul's life from a materialistic perspective, it didn't make any sense. You see, the false teachers had fed the church a skewed idea of what Jesus' death and resurrection meant. They understood it to mean that they enjoyed the full benefits of salvation now. They died and been resurrected in Christ so they could experience salvation to the full right now. It's a kind of prosperity gospel that we see around us. That's the same sort of idea. The false teachers infiltrating the church were making Paul look pathetic. He was this so-called messenger of God and his life was one of hardship, imprisonment, being beaten, needing to escape, shipwreck, loss of sleep. And these false teachers, they would discredit him by saying his life demonstrated nothing of the full salvation that they taught, therefore he was false and not them. Paul had been very clear in his teaching to the Corinthians that salvation is a process. I heard someone say once that salvation is a foundation laid in heaven. We're being prepared for the day when we'll be presented holy, faultless, and blameless before God the Father. Salvation is not all about the here and now. Paul talked to them about being saved, not about enjoying the complete benefits of salvation on this earth. This false teaching flies in the face of the true gospel message. Our motto text this year tells us of the certainty of trouble in this world. Paul tells us that God comforts us in our troubles. In verse 5, he says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation, or comfort, also abounds through Christ. See, when our lives imitate Christ's, we will encounter trouble. Because we're waging war against sin. It's our personal sin we're waging war against. And we're swimming against the tide of the sin that surrounds us in this world. Ben reminded us last week of what the word comfort really means. It's to come alongside. And the context is a battle. God comes alongside us in our battles with sin. We need God to be with us in the battles because we're not able to fight against it in our own strength. 
If, we're ever, if we ever think that we're doing okay, if we think we're doing okay dealing with our own sin, we need to remember its power. That it took the death of Jesus Christ, the God-man, to ultimately kill sin. Paul tells us in Romans, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if, you're, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now these false teachers had discredited Paul so effectively that he has to defend himself by exposing his motives. He tells them that his conscience is clear. There's been no, no duplicity. In fact, his conduct and that of Timothy and Silvanus has been holy. In all their dealings with the Corinthians, they were pure. Paul is emphatic about this. He can boast in how he, Timothy, and Silvanus conducted themselves. He is able to glory in the purity of his conduct with the Corinthians because the, the root of his behavior didn't come from him. He'd already told them in his earlier letter, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And that's just what he's doing here. Paul has a completely clear conscience when it comes to his conduct towards the Corinthians because he didn't rely on human wisdom. Everything was done by the grace of God. You could translate verse 12 like this. This is our boast, the testimony of our conscience, that with pure motives and sincerity which are from God, not by human wisdom, but by the grace of God, we conducted ourselves in the world and all the more toward you. Paul's behavior is fully reliant on God's wisdom and not his own. The purity and sincerity that he has displayed are gifts of God's grace. He's consistently behaved like this wherever he's been. But with the Corinthians, they've seen it in the most unrestrained, unrestricted way. Paul was an incredibly consistent person. We see this throughout all his letters. His amazing heart for the people he's writing to. His unshakable confidence in the truth of the gospel and its transforming power. And in one of the most messed up churches that you're ever likely to meet, he's displayed the purity of his motives to preach Christ crucified and to support his spiritual children in their Christian life. The, Christian, the, the Corinthians now with the seeds of doubt sown in their minds by these false teachers, they start reading his letters looking for hidden messages. They start to read between the lines. They put two and two together and make five. Paul's letters were straightforward. They're not intended to deceive the reader. His God-given motives were pure. Therefore, he wrote exactly what was on his mind clearly. No hidden messages, no ulterior motives. What he said is what he meant. He doubles down on this in verse 14. Basically, what he's saying is that even if the Corinthians don't believe him, this side of eternity, they will see his motives for what they are when Jesus returns. More than that, that they will be able to boast in him 
as he will in them. Just like his fellow apostle John. Paul has no greater joy or boast than to hear his spiritual children are walking in the truth. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That will be Paul's boast on the last day. And the boast of the Corinthians is that they imitated Paul as he imitated Christ. Now, when there are misunderstandings in church, it doesn't take long before you're in the middle of a very tangled web, does it? Issues from the past are raked up, feelings are mixed with fact, and the issue that started off probably so small starts to take on sort of gigantic proportions. Often the problem can just begin with a simple misunderstanding and soon it turns into confusion. How do we deal with these sorts of things? Like Paul, we're to fully rely on God's wisdom. The earthly wisdom is, is corrupt and it's unable to cope with spiritual matters. The person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything and yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We're to make our boast and confidence in the Lord and to rely on his wisdom. Another way we can see misunderstanding in the church is the misinterpretation of God's Word, the Bible. Whether it's a willful attempt to make the words fit the latest trend in society or it may be through the idea that the words of the Bible are somehow obscure and difficult to understand. And this can lead to an uninformed reliance on others to interpret its meaning for us. There are so many people out there telling us what the Bible means. And we can end up not reading it for ourselves. Or when we do read it, we're trying to read between the lines to find its true meaning. Paul's clear that everything he's done and written has been done in purity and in sincerity, reliant on the grace of God. He wrote plainly, he wrote clearly, what you can read can be readily understood. Perhaps you're struggling to accept what the Bible says about you, what it says about us, what it says about me. We need to understand that God is not the God of confusion. His word is, is not obscure in its meaning. You don't need to read between the lines. But it does make us uncomfortable sometimes. It makes us uncomfortable because it exposes our sin. The motives of our hearts are exposed when we really read the Bible. We need to pray that God exposes those earthly motives. And as they're exposed, he would give us, by his grace, pure and sincere motives, just as Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus, they demonstrated to the Corinthians. 
Will we be motivated by materialistic philosophy or by spiritual power? Our motives will, will be revealed on the day of the Lord. Will you be able to boast in the Lord on that day? So we come to misunderstanding, verses 15 to 24. Paul's now addressing what seems to be the bone of contention, the change in his travel plans. At the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul has detailed his original plan to come and see them. He says, I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia. And perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing, since I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows. Now, Paul had modified that plan by adding a short visit to them on his way to Macedonia, as well as a longer, the longer stay on his return, as he'd already planned. Now, the reason for this short visit before going to Macedonia was because he'd heard of this false teaching in the church and the division that was going on. So he organized a flying visit to attempt to reunite them. And after this short visit, he wrote them a letter. It was a letter full of painful truths, and it caused the Corinthians and Paul grief. The whole intention of the letter was that they would repent. And by the time he was ready to return from Macedonia and come for his second and longer stay with them, the problems would be resolved. But when the time came for Paul to return from Macedonia, the church was still in a mess. It was still dealing with the issues um, in his letter. So Paul, deciding at this point that another visit would only make matters worse rather than better, he stayed away to allow the church more time to heal. Now, despite his short visit being a painful one, he was planning and looking forward to seeing them again, restored to spiritual health. He wanted to see them on his way back from Macedonia. Paul wasn't out to get the Corinthians at all. His visits were intended to benefit them. So his original intention was to benefit them twice. He wanted to show them grace. So I think what he's saying here in in verse 15, is a little insight into the issues in the church. They'd been turned by false teachers. They'd misunderstood salvation so that they were under the impression of being able to enjoy salvation, all of salvation's benefits right now. They were sneering at the likes of Paul. He was weak. He's pathetic. And that, according to this new teaching, was a sign of being false. So Paul visits Corinth, his short visit, and he shows them grace, the very thing that they're lacking. Despite their behavior, he desires only to restore them. He's communicating to them God's favor. His plan was purely for their good. He took the, the situation in Corinth really seriously, caring for them like a father. And this short visit must have been really painful, a real painful experience for Paul. 
He's witnessed firsthand the infiltration of these false teachers and the powerful hold they have over his spiritual children. So he'd reprimanded them whilst he was there. And he he wrote to them, calling them out in their waywardness. They would have been wounded. And these wounds would have taken some time to heal. So Paul considered it better to stay away and allow the wounds to heal rather than potentially reopening them again by another visit so soon. They needed more time to return to the faith and to grow in it. In Peter's second letter, he speaks of growing in the faith. He lists what behaviors demonstrate this. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness. Goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And then he tells us, the person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Because if you do these things, you will never stumble. So this is essentially what Paul's visit, his short visit, was about. He'd knocked the Corinthians off their man-made pedestal and they needed to come to terms with these things. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. So as Paul explains his reason for changing his travel plans... He does so in a way that makes us see that there's more at stake than just his reputation. The message of the gospel that he so carefully proclaims to them is also under attack here. Because if Paul was considered unreliable, then so was his message. So he makes a three-pronged defense. And he uses the message he proclaimed to, to them to build his defense on to build his argument on. So the first point we see in verse 17 and 18, it's about character. See, Paul's behavior towards the Corinthians seemed fickle to them. To them, he seemed to be making decisions based on his own self-interest. So Paul, in his defense, begins by making an oath. He calls on God to give a testimony regarding his character. He could go no higher than God. God's character is completely trustworthy. He is a God who cannot lie, and he underwrites all his promises. Paul didn't just preach God's salvation in Corinth. He lived it. Just like the God he served, he hadn't changed. His motives were pure. His travel plan alterations were done with their best intentions at heart, their best interests. Second point, verse 19, trustworthiness. Building on God's character and the absolute trust we can place in his promises being fulfilled, Paul tells us that the proof of God's trustworthiness is Jesus Christ. The ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. And Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus, they were the ones who first proclaimed Jesus Christ to them. He wants them to remember this very important fact. 
It seems that the Corinthians have forgotten the past. They were too puffed up with the present. They need to remember who preached Jesus Christ to them at the beginning. The very proof of the reliability of God's promises. Thirdly, verse 20, experience. When the Corinthians heard God's message preached to them by Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus, they responded yes to the truth they heard. They saw that all God's promises of peace, joy, love, salvation, hope, and heaven, they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Effectively, when Paul proclaimed that all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ with a resounding yes, the response of the Corinthians was, Amen. They responded in the affirmative to God's yes. So Paul, he reinforces things further by concluding in the most complete way possible. Verses 21 and 22, they tell us everything that happens when we become Christians. He includes Father, Son, and Spirit. God the Father, he establishes us in God the Son. He has set us apart for his kingdom. And then we are kept secure by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in this world. And this is also the guarantee of our eternal future. There's nothing deceitful or unreliable with the message that Paul and his colleagues have brought to the Corinthians. There were no ifs, buts, or maybes when it comes to God's promises or his salvation. There's no wondering today whether you're a Christian or not. You're either in his kingdom or you're not. Have you responded to God's yes? Can you say, Amen? If you have, you're in God's kingdom. You have a foundation laid in heaven this morning. If you've not responded to God's message of salvation, you're not in his kingdom. You still reside in the kingdom of darkness. It's as simple as that. There's no duplicity. The message is simple and direct. You don't need to read between the lines to find any hidden meanings, any hidden messages. But it does require your full attention. Make sure you know where you stand with God this morning, today. How can the Corinthians think that Paul's deceptive when he's the one who's brought them the sure and certain message of salvation? Why were they putting trust in people who were undermining the message? They were looking at things all wrong. They were being manipulated by clever words and the appearance of these false teachers having it all together. They were the deceitful ones. Paul came simply to preach Christ crucified. He didn't pretend to them. He didn't manipulate them. He loved them. He considered them to be his spiritual children. He cared for them. Now, if you or I have been undermined by the Corinthians, just like Paul had, how would you react? 
What would your intentions be toward them? What would you say to them? I think I would say something like this. I wash my hands of you. I never want to hear from you again. I'm not interested anymore. I give up with you. You've gone way too far. Someone else can look after you now. Someone else can be responsible for you. It's not going to be me. Not Paul. That's not Paul's reaction. He's patient with them. He desires to restore them and his relationship with them. He wants to clear the air. So we see in the last couple of verses of this chapter that he calls on God to authenticate his actions. He's willing to stake his life on the fact that his intentions were pure. Now Paul's not a dictator. He doesn't use his position as as an apostle to dominate. He knew that if he'd visited them that second time, he would have had to come and judge them. He would have no choice. They were in a mess. But since Paul wasn't a dictator, Paul decides to stay away rather than lord it over them. How does Paul see himself in relation to the Corinthians? A fellow worker for their joy. That's what he says. He served the community of believers by working alongside them and sustaining them in joy. It was one of self-assurance of their standing in Christ. Peter, his fellow apostle, says to those in authority over the church to shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, Not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. I'm sure Paul's natural instinct would be to visit them and to give them both barrels. But he doesn't, because it's not about him. Paul can boast of the Corinthians only in the Lord. He can tell them to imitate him because his life reflects Christ. How does Christ deal with us? He deals with us in love. He didn't come into the world to condemn us. He came into the world to save us from our sin. He's the founder of our salvation. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's achieved full salvation for us. We've been justified by his blood. He comes alongside us. He comforts us in the truest sense of the word. He sustains us. We can have the joy of knowing eternal, our eternal future is secure in him. And if you truly look at your own heart, you know that your life is strewn with sin. If I look at my own heart, I, I look at it and it's, sin is everywhere. But we're not condemned by God. We're shown the way of salvation. We're shown that despite our natural alienation from God, in Christ we can be declared holy, without blemish, above reproach, before Him. Jesus' life on earth, it sets us the example of how we should live. 
But just like the Corinthians, we keep blowing it, don't we? The Corinthians had already asked Paul a number of questions about how they should behave. And Paul had already answered them in his earlier letter. But instead of um, going by Paul's advice, they carried on in their old ways. Paul had every right to go after them for their behavior. But you see, he knew too much about himself and too much about his Savior to do that. He tells the Ephesians, This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. Paul sees himself as a worker for their joy. Now, none of this means that we should have a soft touch towards sin. When Jesus speaks about the man with a a beam of wood in his eye and pointing out the speck in in another's eye, he was showing us that the, the danger of sin, if it's not dealt with in our lives, it blinds us and it leads us further and further away from God. We must deal with our sin. And listen to the advice of those putting authority over us. Even if those words really sting us. For by faith you stand. We're not saved by standing firm. But it shows us our loyalty to our Saviour. If we're truly saved, even though we stumble and we fall away, these times will only be temporary. Because we're established on the rock of Christ. So you could say that for by faith you must stand. If you deviate over essential matters of faith, you fall. 1 Corinthians 15 is an amazing chapter all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why did Paul write it? Because some in the church were deviating away from the truth of the resurrection. They were giving way to the false teachers in essential truth. We need to hold firm to our faith. Dwight Moody said, Real, true faith is man's weakness leaning on God's strength. That's Paul. So the great question of our time, for us here at Holbrook's Evangelical Church, is, Will we be motivated by materialistic philosophy or by spiritual power? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of your word. We thank you that it's clear. And we thank you, Lord, that even whilst we were sinners, you came to this world and you died for us. You didn't come to condemn us, but you came to save us from our sin. Help us, Lord, as we uh, live for you to have pure motives, just as Paul, Timothy, and Sylvanus showed to that church in Corinth. And we pray that you would help us to um, keep short accounts with you with our, our sin, Lord, and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Amen. We're going to close by singing, Jesus paid it all.
all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen.